These shoes are 11 and a half. I wear a seven and a half. So I got a lot of room in here. That's Buster Keaton talking. I'm Todd Milby, and this is The Drunk Projectionist. On this episode, we explore the art of Buster Keaton with his biographer, James Curtis. Curtis has just written an 810-page book titled Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. It explores the silent film star's rise and fall. I've read the first 300 pages or so, and let me tell you, I highly recommend it. You're really going to like it. The first third of the book focuses on Buster's parents, his childhood, and his early two-wheelers with Fatty Arbuckle. Then it's on to his own two-wheelers, and then Keaton's best-known work, his features. Those, of course, include The General and The Navigator, and we talk about both on this episode. So let's start by talking to Curtis about the vaudeville act that Keaton's parents performed before Buster's birth in 1895. We get into the vaudeville stuff quite a bit because it's fascinating. All right, here we go. James Curtis and Buster Keaton. Well, it was kind of an odd act. Uh, Joe was kind of a self-taught acrobat uh, who did odd movements and things with a table. Uh, he was known as the man with the table for a while, as a matter of fact. And uh, so Joe would move very gracefully and, or for his, by his mind, gracefully, I guess. And uh, uh, it, it was a type of act that was referred to generically as silence and fun, which meant that like, uh, the performer did not talk, but uh, he would uh, have this table and he would be able to jump from the floor of the stage onto the table and, uh, there would be a couple of barrels and maybe a chair or two, and he would move between these different objects, you know, and uh, strike poses and uh, do nip-ups and tucks and things like that. And so he would do these things. Uh, the silence part was kind of a problem for him. He couldn't resist talking to the audience, and so uh, he wasn't quite as silent as some of these uh, performers were. Uh, the fun part was... Uh, Joe doing these things while Myra, his wife, would uh, sing and uh, I guess occasionally dance as well, but uh, she was primarily a vocalist and also she could play instruments. She was kind of a really a, a, a terrific uh, a person to pick up this stuff. She was kind of a prodigy, I guess you'd say. And she could master reasonably well things like the saxophone, which became her trademark. And uh, she could play the piano and uh, do things like that. So, so she was musical and he was somewhat elegant and uh, <laughs> graceful. And uh, so that was the act. And um, it, there wasn't much to it. And, and they really, weren't super successful. It's not like they played New no, York. No. They were not people to set the uh, audience afire with their uh, uh, renderings. And so uh, they were kind of uh, at sea trying to figure out what to do with the act until Buster came of age, which uh, was the age of five years old that he actually officially joined the act on a full-time basis. So that would have been the year 1900. And when I try to explain to my, my friends about... Um the act that Buster and his parents were doing. And, and I describe it as a chair and table act. Of course, now in 2022, people look at me like, what are you talking about? And I'm, <laughs> and I said, well, there's this great photo in the book and it, and it shows Joe mm -hmm. hanging underneath the table with, 
with his wife standing there in a dress looking surprised and scared and then Buster kind of just smiling at the camera. And, and, and I'm sure people are thinking like, what is the act? I don't get it. Well, what happened was this, um, and I picked that photo for the book because I, there was a series of photos shot at the same time in the same studio of various poses of the three of them. But this one kind of encapsulates what the act was about, especially during the early days. Uh, you took the act that I just described, and then when Buster joined the act, uh, Joe got the inspiration to dress him up uh, in pretty much the same costume and makeup that Joe himself was uh, wearing. And uh he was playing in effect, uh, well, back in the um, medicine show days when Buster was born, uh, he was doing a, what was referred to at the time as a um, rough Irish specialty, which meant that he was playing a caricature of an Irish immigrant and uh, a guy who was on the make toward Myra. And uh, it was a, a romancing act for a while she would sing and he would pursue her or woo her as you might might say and uh, and then you had the table business that it evolved into and Myra's musical talents were on display and uh, so anyway Joe got the idea of bringing Buster in and Buster initially would just kind of uh, you know stand at the side of the uh, proscenium and uh, make uh, comments to the audience occasionally and uh, then then it evolved to the point where Buster was actually involved in, I don't want to say destroying the act as, as uh, Joe would perform it, but rather to disrupt the act. And so he would sneak out on stage when Joe was doing his tabletop routine and Myra was singing and uh, he'd have a broom in hand, for instance, and he'd just sweep the broom across the uh, surface of the table and knock his father onto the ground. And then he'd, he'd run off quickly. And so he was, he was continually uh, uh, appearing behind Joe where Joe couldn't see him, but the audience could and preparing to uh, wreak havoc in some way uh, uh, during the course of the act. And that's when the act caught fire because it was funny and, and became kind of a slapstick act in the, in, in effect. And, uh, so it continued to evolve, and when it really reached its heights, it was kind of a parody of modern child rearing techniques at the turn of the century. Right. So, there's this. There's this. There's this terrific bit in the book where you describe the act a little bit, and Joe says something like, "It just breaks a father's heart to be so rough." And then he pushes Buster, and I think I think a lot, and it's and at some point Buster apologizes to the audience, like, or to his father. Uh, I'm so sorry I fell. <laughs> and that's after he was thrown across the stage and into a flat <laughs> right. scenery. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, that's what it became was um, uh, Buster must be taught to mind. That was Joe's theme for the for the act. And he would tell the audience that. And so Buster would do something awful to Joe and Joe would retaliate. Uh, and... I don't think there was a lot of rough and tumble at the beginning uh, of the act. I think one of the big things that happened in the early act was that Joe would pick up Buster like a bowling ball and roll him across the stage. And uh, that was about it. And Buster was taught how to roll like that so that it didn't injure him in any way. It was just something that uh, uh, was kind of like roughhousing with his old man, which is something a lot of kids can identify with even today, I think. And, uh, so they, they, they went ahead and they did that. And then over time, it became more and more of a, of a 
apparently violent um, back and forth, though I would say that for the most part, uh, uh, it was not, it, it, it gave the illusion that Buster was getting roughed up a lot. And it also created the illusion that Joe was getting roughed up a lot. And uh, in neither case was that true. They were good acrobatic uh, people and uh, performers and uh uh, they they knew what they were doing and how to do it well and not injure themselves in the process. And so uh, although the act looked rough and that was the illusion that was desired, uh, they wore padded costumes. And uh, again, they knew where to fall and how to fall so as not to hurt themselves or break anything. But uh, the effect to the audience was, wow, <laughs> as a mixture of thrill and fun and maybe a little element of concern uh, because of the level of apparent violence that uh, the act trafficked. Yeah. And one of the things that I really liked about learning about this vaudeville period is that by the time Buster started doing film around 1920, he'd already had 15 years of experience. I mean, he always, he already had all this, all this acrobatic yeah. and physical and comedy experience. Yeah, because he he's, let's he started the act again in 1900. He went into films in 1917. By that point, he had turned 21 and broken the family act up because Joe's drinking had gotten out of hand, and uh, he, Buster was just tired of putting up with it. And he figured it was time to go out on his own. His mother wasn't particularly a, a born-in-the-trunk type of performer. She was born in a trunk, so to speak, uh, because she grew up in... Uh, a family where her his her father was a traveling minstrel and uh, worked the medicine shows and had a medicine show himself, but she never really enjoyed performing. I don't think, and she was very happy to see the act uh, go away when it did. But uh, those fifteen years, sixteen years that uh, Buster spent on stage with his parents, uh, that's when he was learning comedy. He was learning how audiences reacted to things, uh, how to milk an, uh, a laugh, how to. Uh, uh, extend the laugh with a, a, a blank stare to the audience, that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of what uh, he showed and displayed on screen later on was, was all stuff that he had uh, developed and perfected on stage in front of live audiences. Right. And, and one of the things you write, there's this uh, quote from Buster in the book where Buster says, now, you know, he talks about like the reaction to, you know, getting shoved by his father, like, does he does he does he like pretend that it hurts right away? Does he delay the pretend that it hurts, or does he ignore that it hurts? Like what gets the laugh? And what he figured out was that the slow thinker got the laugh. <laughs> well, that, there you go. He's he's experimenting, you know. And part of being live on stage also is reading the audience, reading the crowd, and uh, audiences can differ. And an audience, one audience will laugh uproariously at something and the, the next audience will just sit there and stare at them. Comedy is very subjective. So uh, Buster learned how to read an audience as well. And I think when he got into filmmaking that that was one of his uh, challenges is you don't have an audience, you have a camera that you're working to. And so that I think is why uh, previews are very important for him. You put something on film and then you take it out and put it in front of an audience and see if it has the effect you're hoping it'll have. And sometimes it didn't. And uh, you went back and you tried again. Right, right, right. Yeah. And there's lots of references to that in the book, how there was uh, many revisions after the first cut was shown to an audience. Trial and error. Yeah. You know, the, the one that's uh, particularly an example of that is Sherlock Jr., which is today regarded as a 
comic masterpiece, but uh, at the time, uh, uh, he he just kept cutting and previewing and cutting and reshooting. And uh, by the end of that process, he had a funny film, but he didn't have one that made a lot of sense. And uh, it was all a pro, uh, you know, it, it was all kind of a magician's uh, magical box of, uh, of, uh, of uh, tricks and, and displays of various sorts. And, um, uh, well, kind of an illusion because he is dreaming a lot of it. Uh, so he got away with that. But uh, uh, it was not initially conceived to work kind of the way that it developed into. But uh, uh, that's a perfect example because at the end of the day, it ends up running, what, 40, 41 minutes. It's, it's a very short feature. And uh, and there were complaints about it from exhibitors. They'd, they'd say this thing is awfully short for a, a first-run feature, and uh, they'd have to put in extra extra material to take up the slack because uh, features back then were expected to run about 60 minutes, maybe 65 Well, minutes. why don't we talk about um, Buster's early work for film with Roscoe Arbuckle? Yeah, um, well, Arbuckle was with Max Sennett. Uh, he was on stage first, of course, and then he went with Sennett. And he and Mabel Norman made a number of films together. Uh, but uh, Sennett had a very crude idea of comedy. It was very violent and uh, basic and uh, wasn't a lot of subtlety to it. And Arbuckle began to chafe at the limited, narrow-minded mind, sort of comedy that... Um, Senate trafficked in. So uh, he wanted to move away from Senate. He was tired of working with Senate. And um, Joe Skank came along, uh, who was uh, uh, with his brother at that point, was uh, running Palisades Park in New Jersey, but also uh, getting into the filmmaking business uh, with Norma Talmage, whom he ended up marrying very quickly. And uh, uh, so he established, outfitted a studio on 48th Street in New York City, which is still there, incidentally. It's been a parking garage since the late 20s, but it's, the structure is still there. And uh, he, uh, he thought, okay, I'm going to make the uh, Norma Talmage features. Uh, and then Norma's younger sister, Constance, uh, started specializing in comedy. And so he was going to do the Constance Talmage features as well. And then he wanted to do uh, short comedies with Roscoe Arbuckle. They got together, and uh, Arbuckle quickly became one of the top comedians in the world. He was right up there with Chaplin almost. And uh, so they were going to do this new series of two reelers to be released by Paramount uh, in New York in 1917. And Skank ran into Buster on the street one day, and Skank knew Buster because Skank booked the vaudeville houses uh, for Marcus Lowe uh, had done that recently. In fact, officially, that's still what he was doing. Uh, and, uh, he had booked the three Keatons. So, uh, uh, they knew each other and Skank said something to the effect of Buster. Uh, we're going to be making some films over at the Norma Talmadge studio on 48th street. You want to come by and maybe, uh, do a scene with Roscoe Arbuckle. And, uh, Buster was waiting to go into a show for the Schuberts and didn't have much to do. And so he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So, he came over, and fortunately, Buster was keeping uh, notebooks at the time, so um, we know the exact date that he went to the studio and really stepped before a camera for the first time. And um, and so it was a momentous occasion because Buster immediately fell in love with the potentialities of film, and uh, 
Roscoe was good enough and technically aware enough. He had been in films for what five, six years at that point that uh, he could, he could open up the camera and show Buster how the film traveled through the gate and all of that. And uh, Buster immediately saw the potential for doing things with the motion picture camera that you couldn't possibly do on stage. And that excited him and the mechanics of it all excited him. So uh, by the end of the first week, uh, he got out of the Schubert contract and uh, he was a, a movie figure and uh, the rest was history. He learned so much working with Arbuckle from directing to projecting to editing. I mean, Arbuckle said that he lived in the camera. Keaton had a remarkable sense. I think in, this, in a way he had a civil engineer's mind. You know, he could figure out things mathematically. He could look at um, the workings of something. He, 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 in another life, he could have had an engineer's degree and uh, done very well for himself. But uh, strangely, with someone with a mind like that, he also had that foundation, that really solid foundation in comedy, making people laugh. And so combining those two capabilities uh, worked out very well for him. Why don't we talk about uh, Out West from 1918? It was one of the first films they made in California. They came out here uh, late in 1917. Uh, unfortunately, the one Buster Keaton film that's still missing, um, uh, we hope it'll turn up someday, is called uh, Country Hero. And that was the first film they made out here. It was in Long Beach, California, which is not far from where I'm sitting right now. And... Um, they worked at a studio called Balboa. It was about a mile away from the seashore. And uh, uh, it was it represented Joe Keaton's film debut. And uh, that one's lost. That first one from, for California was lost, but uh, or is lost currently. But um, Out West was the one they made after that. And uh, Out West contains what I think... What I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe is the first great Buster Keaton gag for the screen. And uh, Buster had assumed in a very casual way the position of assistant director, or you might even say associate director on the Arbuckle shorts. Arbuckle directed his own films, but when he was in front of the camera, he liked the idea of Buster being next to the camera and watching what was going on and making suggestions. And uh, so... Out West is being shot, the first part of Out West, which does not feature Buster. It features Joe Keaton, but it doesn't feature Buster. So Buster was behind the camera at that point, and they're out on the uh, rails between uh, Southern California and Las Vegas in the desert. And uh, Arbuckle's playing a stowaway on this train, and so Joe Keaton is the conductor, and he has a couple of um, workers with him, and they're chasing Arbuckle around the train trying to catch him. And at one point, Arbuckle rolls off the train and the train is moving. Uh, and um, rather than scrambling back onto the train while he can, uh, he decides he's going to have a smoke instead. So he uh, pulls out the cigarette paper and the tobacco and uh, rolls himself a, a, a cigarette. And uh, when it comes time to light it, he just takes the wooden match out and uh, holds it behind him and uh, it just strikes on the moving train as it goes by. He lights a cigarette, takes a couple of puffs, and then drops it down and uh, just casually and very uh, smoothly reaches out, catches the rail at the back of the uh, caboose as it passes by and very uh, gracefully moves himself back up onto the train again as it uh, keeps rolling. 
So uh, that's a that's a gag you could never do on stage. It wouldn't work. And uh, I think I think that's and it's not the kind of gag that Arbuckle usually did. Arbuckle usually did things that uh, uh, he could do on stage. You know, he 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 could juggle butcher knives and things like that. Uh, but uh, something of that size was not. Uh, and especially with a train was not something that was typically uh, in Arbuckle's bag of tricks. But uh, when you write about gags and, and when Keaton talks about gags, it means something different in a silent film context than it does in 2022. It was a constant process of thinking, OK, what can we do here? We've got this and this. Now, what what can we do that will uh, uh, get an audience laughing? And uh, so I think... I think the um, ideas initially that that inspired a, a a film like Out West would be along the lines of well, let's let's take Roscoe and put him in the West. What kind of conventions can we take and skewers send up, if you will? Uh, uh, Buster's character in it; he's the bad guy, and uh, he swaggers to the saloon and uh, and uh, is a, is a dangerous character in a, in a comedic sort of way. Um, his character is a parody of a stage character, well-known stage character. And, uh, so they, they, they take all the disparate bits and put them together and give it the, the very vague spine of a, of a plot and, uh, proceed to pretty much, um, improvise a great deal of it as they're going along. So that's why these films would take uh, three or four weeks to, in some cases, to produce a uh, 20 minutes worth of funny film. And again, the process of taking it out, showing it to audiences and trying to, trying to figure out uh, what's going to work and what isn't uh, took place. Absolutely. And sometimes uh, Buster's father, Joe Keaton, would be in these Arbuckle movies and later in, in, in Keaton's movies himself. Um, and somebody asked Joe, by the way, Joe's a great character to have in the book because he always <laughs> he just says something outrageous. He is. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of those outrageous things. So somebody asked Joe after he was working on the movie, like, how did you like it? And Joe said, oh, it's all right. If our buckle wouldn't try and tell me how to kick my boy. Hell, ain't I been kicking him all my life? What came up there was they were trying to uh, direct Joe because of the way the scene was set up. They were trying to direct Joe to kick Buster uh, with his left foot and he was, Joe was used to kicking Buster with his right foot. <laughs> and, and, but, but the left, the left leg would, uh, would read better, sure. uh, in profile in front because he was at the, uh, the right side of the screen <laughs> and right side of the frame, I should say. And, um, Joe didn't respond well to that when someone said, well, use your other leg. And he said, I, I don't kick Buster with this leg, I kick him with this leg. And uh, then, then the business about shooting out a sequence where they would, uh, he, he couldn't master any particular idea of what the story was supposed to be when they uh, shot out a sequence like that. So, but uh, yeah, no, he, he was a guy of the stage pretty much. And I don't think he, had, he, necessarily enjoyed doing film work but yeah i kind of want part of me kind of wants to just go back and talk about all of joe's ads um that he used <laughs> <laughs> yeah he that's how he communicated with the world i mean if he had twitter back then he'd be uh tweeting constantly and uh those little trade ads that he put in variety and uh billboard were uh uh the uh prehistoric uh tweets of their day i think so uh, another thing to think about from a modern perspective is just how many films Arbuckle and later Keaton were doing on a yearly basis and how much pressure there was 
to always have them be new and funny and just like from a creative standpoint, how difficult that was. I, I did a thing recently with Ben Modell, the, um, the pianist uh, who does a lot of silent film work for um, the uh, Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, Long Island. And uh, uh, I was asking, I asked Steve at one point if it's tougher playing for short subjects versus playing for a feature. And he said, yeah, it is because you're, you're having to start and stop again and then developing a new sound and a new rhythm depending upon the next short film that you're uh, playing for. And with a feature, you get into a groove with a feature and uh, you continue on till the end. And uh, so it's a tougher way to fill an hour to run three two reelers as opposed to one feature, especially for the accompanist. And uh, so... Uh, I think the thing, same thing was true for the guys that were charged with coming up with six or eight short subjects a season. Uh, Arbuckle especially, he, he just found it extremely wearing to keep coming up with story ideas and uh, gags and the like and being responsible for producing uh, six or eight films a year that caught on with audiences and uh, fulfilled the uh, contracts with the distributors. Um, so he was happy to move into features and that's why all these guys eventually did move into features because it was easier to produce one or two features a year versus six or eight, uh, two reelers. And Arbuckle said, you only star in movies from picture to picture. Yeah. If two or three pictures are bad, you're not a star anymore. It's a constant worry. That's why people move. That's why movie people are temperamental. It's a terrible strain. Yeah. And I think he was high strung anyway. So, uh, um, that didn't help matters. Buster made the same comment though or a relatively same comment but uh when he started out um their contract was with metro and uh metro signed up for eight two reelers in a single year so that's you know about 20 20 minutes of material every six weeks or thereabouts um and to get that 20 minute film you've got to shoot about 60 minutes worth of material to uh cut it down and uh um, make sure that you've got a, a, a tight, uh, high-quality film that does not lag. After the first season of that, they moved to First National and got down to a six-film schedule, which was a little bit more manageable. So he spent the rest of his uh, short-subject life, uh, if you will, doing films for the First National, and he settled into the six-film a year pattern until features came along that was possible to move into features. How did Keaton move from working with Arbuckle to working on his own and being in charge of his own his own movies? Well, he 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 did it as kind of an apprenticeship thing because uh, Arbuckle went east early in 1920, and he was he was looking to get into features, and so he turned his company which. In, included uh, a man named Lou Anger who was managing the operation and his cinematographer, his gag writers, et cetera. He turned them all over to Buster Keaton. And so Buster set about to make his first film in which he was the principal character and not in support of Arbuckle. And uh, that became uh, the high sign. It's interesting to see in terms of Buster taking control of the entire operation and uh, producing a film that uh, in his mind wasn't very good, though I think in retrospect it's been shown to be one of his uh, 
uh, one of his better films. It's not it's not on the same level as say Cops or One Week, but it's still still a good film, decent film. But he wanted it show, show, uh, shelved. It was um, they had about twelve thousand, thirteen thousand dollars into it, and uh, and Lou Anger especially wanted to get the money back, but Buster wanted it shelved, and uh, they ended up uh, doing exactly that. Uh, Buster's argument, which I think had some merit, was that he needed a stronger film to kick off a series where he's essentially not been known before. I mean, but in the Arbuckles, Buster was never billed on the film. It never said with Buster Keaton, but he was in them and the audience recognized him from film to film. But uh, uh, they were Arbuckle comedies and Arbuckle was the one that got the attention. So all of a sudden you're taking Buster and putting him in his own films and billing him Buster Keaton in. And uh, so that, that's a whole different proposition. You need a really strong debut in order to uh, uh, lay a marker down and say, this is what we're going to do in the future. So uh, I think that was uh, uh, when he decided he needed more help. And uh, that's when he got Eddie Klein as co-director and also who was also from Senate initially and, uh, and uh, co-writer. He had a, uh, he kept the, um, gag writers again and Arbuckle did not come back to short films he went into features for Paramount and uh, so Buster had his own organization it was pretty much ready made for him so let's talk about one week which is a story of a couple's first week in marriage though it's been a really really long time since I've seen it but uh, your book refreshed my memory and so did the photo they're trying to build a house and Things happen. Well, it was it was a great idea, very natural ideas. One of the Buster said the best ideas for these films were short enough that you could write them on the back of a postcard. And this is one that's like that because there was a great fad in what were referred to at the time as kit homes, uh, the largest purveyor of which were uh, uh, Sears Roebuck and Company, and uh, they put out whole catalogs and they had at least one mill, maybe more than one mill. I think they had multiple mills. Uh, that they used to generate uh, these kit homes. And what you do is you'd order a particular style uh, for X many dollars. Um, they'd mill all the boards and everything and uh, ship them to you wherever you had your plot of land. And uh, you'd proceed to put it together like, uh, you know, for a later generation, a Heath kit uh, or something similar where, where uh, you had the instructions, you know, it was like building a model ship. And... Uh, you were expected to be able to put these together and uh, interestingly enough, or hire a crew to do it for you. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, a lot of people took them up on that. And uh, there's still a lot of kit homes uh, like for here in California. There, there, I think there are people that make a point of uh, identifying them and uh, rejoicing the fact that they still stand after a century or more. And uh, so anyway, that everybody knew about kit homes in 1920. And so they, someone got the idea, well, what if somebody is going to build uh, one of these houses and the numbers get mixed up? What would happen? And so that was the basic idea behind it. Uh, in this case, we have a malevolent uh, former suitor of the girl who uh, – uh, took some glee in coming across the pieces and uh, the boxes. Ah, yes, were... right, right, right. <laughs> and, and he pulls out the um, he pulls out the paint and the brush and uh, starts to alter the numbers. And then hooting to himself, he kind of runs off. And um, Buster and Sybil are there to uh, try to put uh, 
put it together based upon the numbering system that this guy has altered. So, and uh, the framing device is uh, the calendar day by day is that uh, adds up to one week. And here's all everything that happens in that week that uh, relates to this malformed uh, structure. Yeah. And there were some complicated gags as part of this, including. Oh, yeah. Uh, a turntable. Oh, yeah. No, there were. But again, something something that's entirely cinematic. You know, you couldn't stage any of those gags on stage. Uh, it, it wouldn't wouldn't work at all. Uh the house itself, uh, the trains that you uh, see used in it, uh, uh, it's its really a work of cinema. And I think that more than any other single thing distinguishes what Buster Keaton did from a lot of other comedians at that time, that uh, he had a real sense of what you could put on the screen and what you needed the film camera to do. And uh, he he was always eager to make full use of that camera. In one week, if I remember correctly, the end of the movie is it looks like the train's gonna. Well, it's he 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 double crosses the audience. In effect, there's this train coming. They're trying to move the house uh, uh, across the tracks while that's going on, and because they found out that the house is built on the wrong plot of land. And they see this train roaring in on them and they finally give up trying to save it. And they just run off to one side and wait for the commotion. And uh, the train turns out to be on a parallel track. And so it goes right by and doesn't damage the house at all. And they look around and say, oh, boy, that's a, that's that's a relief. And then here comes a train from the opposite direction and reduces it to kindling. <laughs> right. That's right. So that's 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 one of those uh, great Keaton-esque gags. In fact, he repeated it one time in a talking feature. A uh, little bit different situation, but not greatly so. But same idea. There are so many fantastic Keaton movies to talk about in these in these early years, including including The Navigator. Well, The Navigator is another one of those postcard ideas where you could uh, envision someone. Well, two people in this case: the boy and the girl, uh, and they're both well off. They come from wealthy families and uh, they have everything done for them. And so the idea was what, what happens if two of these people, uh, these two people get, uh, find themselves on a, um, on a ship with no crew, anything. They're, they're afloat. They're at sea alone. And since they've had they've been pampered all their lives with servants and the like. They're, they're helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. And so uh, take that situation and take it to its logical extremes, what happens and how does it happen and why. And uh, so that's The Navigator in a nutshell. And uh, it turned out to be one of his most popular films. And it's still got some uh, beautifully poetic things in it. The whole business where they discover that they're on the ship together, where uh the camera captures the whole front uh, section, the superstructure of the ship. And the girl is there. Buster is there. They don't know that each other is on the ship, uh, but they hear footsteps. And so there are a lot of near misses and the camera just sits back and watches this happen, watches, watches this, this happen. And uh, uh, the coordination, the choreography, if you will, is remarkable. Uh, the timing is great. And, uh, it wasn't over-rehearsed. Buster was careful about not over-rehearsing his stuff. And so uh, 
it's just one of those magical things they managed to capture on film. And it, um, it's one of the great sequences in a Buster Keaton film. It's fantastic. And one of the reasons that Buster didn't like to over-rehearse, as you point out in the book, is that um, it, it loses something. And then to, if he feels like a scene has been over-rehearsed or it's getting where everybody knows what's going to happen, like it seems like he would take a break and everybody would go play baseball and then they'd come back. Yeah, I'd say play a couple of innings of baseball, and uh, he called that unrehearsing a scene because then you'd come back and say, okay, now where were we? Well, let's see. I think I was going to do this. Okay, well, let's – so if things got too mechanical, they weren't funny uh, was his conviction. And so he wanted to make sure that uh, these things were going to happen in a way that that was believable and organic to the action, organic to the material. And the Navigator was was filmed in 1923 or 24? 24. Yeah. Okay. So it was filmed in 1924, and yet there's a fantastic underwater scene where Buster is interacting with fish and swordfish and and yeah, they they had a lot of trouble trying to get that scene because uh, it, it was very clearly envisioned, but uh, they tried shooting it in the ocean, waters off Catalina, as a matter of fact, and. Uh, the the sand was getting stirred up and they found that uh, they couldn't get a clear picture that way. And they finally ended up, then they tried to do it in a pool, a, a neighborhood plunge, a community plunge in Riverside, and that didn't work. It was a Riverside or San Bernardino, out in the Inland Empire, and um, that didn't work. And they finally ended up shooting in Lake Tahoe where they built this kind of proscenium structure from which they could, it was like a big puppet uh, theater where you could uh, run rubber fish through on wires and things. And uh, they had a diving bell like contraption with two cameras and cameramen that they would uh, send down and uh, capture this uh, action underwater. And uh, it was so cold up there because, of course, it's it's uh, a mountain region that uh, Buster could only stay down for 20 minutes, half hour at a time. And then they'd have to haul him up and uh, warm him up in order to go back down again. So it was tough work. and uh, Super tough work. Yeah. But but they got some they got some wonderful footage. And uh, uh, I think they shot a lot more than had to cut it down. I think underwater stuff tends to slow down a picture because it impedes your movements. You know, you're not moving around very fast. And uh, I think a little of it goes a long way, as I think they found. But it's a great film, and uh, it's certainly one of his top-tier features. Let's talk about The General. For those who haven't seen The General, give us a brief overcap of when it came out. And Well, it, it was made in 26, or released in early 27. It was the most expensive feature he ever did. And... Um, but it was taken by from a true incident. It was uh, the Andrews Raid in the Civil War, which uh, involved Union soldiers, spies actually, uh, creeping down into the southern regions of the of the United States and uh, across enemy lines and stealing a locomotive, an engine, and a tender and some cars and taking it back over uh, into northern territory and. Uh, so it, it was a famous incident in the Civil War that Buster was unaware of. And uh, a, a gag writer that he worked with named Clyde Bruckman uh, came up with a book, a memoir by one of the participants in the raid. The book had been known over time by various titles, but uh, the one that uh, really grabbed Bruckman and also Keaton when he heard the title was The Great Locomotive Chase. 
And he thought, hey, that's a perfect th- uh, idea for a Buster Keaton feature. And so- uh, It's got the word chase in it. It's got chase in it. It's got locomotive in it. So those are two great <laughs> words as far as uh, Buster's concerned. So- uh, Absolutely. And so and so Buster in the movie plays this unassuming guy. Well, well what, what the basic idea was Buster's uh, engine, which is the general, uh, which is where the title comes from, uh, is the one that they try to steal. And so he wants it back. And so it's this one little guy who's uh, uh, representative of the Confederacy, in effect. Uh, he uh, chases these guys and uh, he, wants his, he wants his locomotive back. He finds himself in enemy, behind enemy lines at one point and uh, getting, getting word back and getting the locomotive back to, um, to the south to the Confederacy is what, what his main goal is. And, uh, in the process, he rescues the girl from the bad guys. It's, it, there's, there's all kinds of great stuff in it. And, uh, the setup, the first third of the film is, uh, essentially taken from history and the rest of it is fictional. In the book, there's a, there's a photo of, uh, the train collapsing over the bridge and tell us about that stunt and how difficult it was to, uh, to make happen. Well, it, it was taken from an event in the book and, uh, Buster's idea was to stage it uh, full scale. In other words, he didn't want to do it with a miniature. He wanted the thrill of taking an actual locomotive and uh, sending it into the river below uh, via the collapse of a trestle. And uh, so they were up in Cottage Grove, Oregon to do this. And and uh, to this day, you can still go to see the part of the uh, the. Uh, area uh, at the river where uh, they actually built this trestle, but they actually built a bridge just to destroy it for the film. And they bought an old uh, engine, which they had modified so that it looked like a Civil War locomotive and uh, proceeded to shoot that and became quite an event. They had tourists coming in, they had hot dog vendors and things, and everybody wanted to witness this thing. And it was it was horrendously dangerous um, if if anything went wrong. But uh, this is one of Buster's great days as a director of films, where he he stages thing and it's as thrilling as he intended it to be. But uh, it took a lot of prep, a lot of work, and it would cost about forty thousand dollars to do. And that. It involved gasoline and dynamite. Yeah, they they well what they did was they were trying to figure out how best to make the thing collapse uh, because in the story the bridge is on fire. It's burning, and the Union general says, well, it's still sturdy enough. You can run the train across it, and so they're ordered to do that, and they do, and in the middle of that, uh, in, with, with the bridge burning, it just collapses when it gets around the center of the thing, and, uh, uh, and so it's a spectacular fall, and uh, so they, they, they had to figure out exactly how they could time the collapse, and the fire was part of it, but in order to make the the bridge collapse on cue, they uh, mined both sides of it, and uh, it was not something that you could put humans into the middle of. So uh, the engineer and the uh, uh, the, the uh, other guy, the other workman on the on the thing, uh, they were paper mache figures. And uh, after several false starts, they finally got the shot the way they wanted it, just about the last minute before uh, they lost the light for the day. It was quite spectacular, and Buster afterwards said, "Okay, that's it for today. We've got it." And uh, and it it was one of those things they used the photo of that particular uh, crash uh, 
in promoting the film. It was printed in the newspapers, and it was one of the great audience thrills of the silent era, I think. And still is today. I know. I remember the first time I saw the movie, I was like, wow, that is that is really something. Yeah, there's a big difference between a miniature. I don't care how well the miniature is done. That uh, doesn't doesn't really approximate even the uh, thrill of seeing it done in a full-size situation like this. Um, if you see the general on a big screen, which is the proper way to see it uh, with an audience and everything, it really packs a wall up even today. And there, But there, there are also lighter moments in the movie, including when Buster's you know, having to feed all the wood into the fire and... And the woman he's with starts to uh, make house because she starts to sweep up, sweep up the stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, Marion Mack. That that was that business was something that she came up with apparently. And uh, she, she, there's a point where Buster starts to throttle her. He's so frustrated with her, and then he catches himself, stops, and gives her a kiss. And um, she said, "I think I got that kiss for coming up with the uh, gag." Yeah, it's it's. Officially a comedy, I think the way to approach it actually is to to regard it as a drama with comedic uh, uh, elements to it because uh, uh, it's not a fall-down funny comedy all the time. There's some really good dramatic stuff in it, and uh, it's, a, it's a very serious um, story uh, overall. So uh, uh, if you're expecting Sherlock Jr. again, you're going to be disappointed, but on its own level, it's the most sophisticated thing he ever did. And clearly the most ambitious feature comedy of the entire silent era. How successful was The General? The General was more successful than people seem to think. Uh, it was profitable. Uh, wasn't her wonderfully profitable, but it didn't lose money. And uh, it was the most expensive feature Buster Keaton made. It was a cost was somewhere around $450,000. I don't remember the exact figure offhand. It's in the book. The problem for Buster was that the company that was producing his films, which was called Buster Keaton Productions Incorporated, was an outgrowth of the original company that was formed to make Roscoe Arbuckle, two real comedies. And the difference between two reelers and features was that the investors, there were 10 shareholders in Keaton Productions, none of whom were Buster Keaton. I mean, he, he was an employee of the company, but uh, he was not an owner of the company. They would put up the money when they were making short comedies. And when they deliver the negative of the comedy to the uh, distributor, be it Metro or uh, or First National later, the distributor would reimburse them for their cost, the, the cost of production. So um, they would immediately get their money back. So their exposure wasn't all that great. Well, when Buster went into features in 1923, it was a different setup and there was no reimbursement uh, provision. So the investors put up the money and they had to wait for the box office returns in order to um, uh, get their money back and ideally to make a little bit of money. And um, this was in the roaring 20s when a lot of things were happening that uh, made money look easier to make than to put it into feature comedies that cost almost half a million dollars. I mean, the stock market was going crazy. The real estate market was going crazy. So uh, I think there was a sense that even though they finally did get their money back on the general and made a little bit on top of that, it uh, it 
took two or three years to do it. Uh, the general up to that point, ironically, was the highest grossing of all of W all of um, Buster Keaton's features, but uh, uh, it cost more than perhaps they would have liked it to, and then so that was the major problem with it. But uh, uh, it, in the same at the same time, they got a masterpiece uh, for their money. Not that they cared about that back then, but today we're grateful that they actually did fund that film because we have it to enjoy still. We do, yeah. I'm I'm super thankful, as I'm sure all cinephiles are, that uh, that the general is out there. And oh, oh, you bet, you bet. Well, thanks so much for joining us, James. Uh, thank you, Todd. I appreciate it.